0: In this True Crime Law and Order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals. One who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. I'm so excited. By what? By us recording right now. <laughs> oh, it's very novel. It's it's not like we do it every single week. <laughs> I've been looking forward to it for some reason, especially this week. I think. Oh, interesting. Is it because you're the
1: researcher of the crime? That's part of it because I looked it up ahead of time and I did a lot of my work um, earlier this time around. Uh huh. <laughs> Which listeners, I'll just say it right now, resulted in me forgetting to watch the actual <laughs> episode of Law and Order today, but. Luckily for you folks, I am not the episode recapper, so just like you, I will be experiencing this (laughs) fresh. For the first
0: time. Well, I'm N, and that's Matt. Welcome to Rip From The Headlines. I have a few random things to talk about, and it looks like you do too. I think that's another part of why I was excited. I just kept seeing that little list growing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, last week I mentioned, I think it was last week, I Mm -hmm. mentioned the new Gossip Girl reboot. Oh, right. And I said, I'm not sure I love the premise of the teachers bullying students, but I did watch the second episode and it feels like, like if I ignore all of the scenes with teachers, then it feels like a good Gossip Girl reboot. Okay. So I'm, I'm just going to choose to black out during those scenes and hope that they eventually write those teachers out of the, out of the series.
1: Yeah. I was going to say, are you still crossing your fingers for that hope? (laughs) A hundred
0: percent. (laughs) Yes. I also am now current on To <gasps> Live and Die in LA. Okay. And this story is so wild. I'm so, like, engrossed. Yes. It's the, the disappearance of Elaine Park, mm-hmm. um, and it's just, I don't, I, what do you think? What are your thoughts so far? Well,
1: before I tell you my thoughts, I wanted to ask you, do you think it gets better at the balance between host interaction <laughs> and story? A bit, yes.
0: There was definitely like, remember was how it you the said Billy Eilish only moment? <laughs> well, that was one. I was like, oh my god, now Billy Eilish but is that's in the story. That's very relevant. She she knows her. They know her. Yeah, and maybe let's come back to that. But yeah. also, you told me he only mentions Incubus in one episode, but he definitely brought it up in another one. Because he's
1: introducing the person that's involved, who happens to be in Incubus. He's just mentioning the person's name and saying from Incubus.
0: Imagine though, it was like a Blink One Eighty, like you know, Blink One Eighty Two and Ninety Eight. If Nick Lachey showed up on a like realistic true crime podcast and somebody kept saying like, "Oh, my best friend, Nick Lachey," I, w- I would be out. N- N- and <laughs> and you cannot possibly be comparing. Incubus to
1: 98 Degrees.
0: Well, no, because we know 98 Degrees is far better. Goodbye. Goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye. Goodbye. (laughs) I actually can't even think of a single Incubus song off the top of my head. Make yourself. Well. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And then he talked to Billie Eilish. And all Billie Eilish said was like, she was in my dance crew and she was like, happy-go-lucky. Like, it was just, it didn't need to be Billie Eilish, but it just felt very like, oh, it's lending... I don't know. I don't I'm, know. I still I feel, feel like, a little funky, but...
1: I feel like by doing that, it gets more people to listen to the, the show. That's my attitude. If I knew a famous musician, you better believe every episode of this show. I'd be like, <laughs> yeah, I was just talking to um, Don Mariah. Richards from Danity Kane. <laughs> you picked Danity Kane? Well, I love Don Richards. <laughs> <laughs> I About the, the podcast. Yes. I just feel like... I don't know if it's spoiler alert because we're current, but I cannot imagine that the mother is not involved and to blame. I can't imagine with everything they found in the last two episodes specifically.
0: Yeah. How could it not be them? How? It does definitely seem to point in that direction. Just, I
1: already was really weirded out in immediately before she even seemed to be a suspect. Uh huh. When they talked to her, about her daughter's disappearance, and one of the first things she tells them is like, let me go show you her room and her weird lingerie that she would hang out in the house in.
0: Yeah, nobody that does was that. strange.
1: Nobody does that. And nobody does that that's like a young girl like
0: that. Yeah, so... it's definitely very, it's definitely very suspicious, I will say. Mm-hmm. There are definitely moments in the podcast. I, I know when, that I'm enjoying a podcast and that it's a good podcast when I have... Actual like mm-hmm. physical reactions mm-hmm. to it. Like there were moments in To Live and Die in L.A. where my eyes got really big when I heard something, or I like I think I gasped at one point. So yeah, when that happens, I know it's good storytelling.
1: Totally. And speaking of that, last week um, on our other podcast, I was talking about how I was having very visceral reactions to the book we're reading.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, and I
1: compared it to like the Neverending Story when Bastion <laughs> is reading the book and like throws it across the room and such. Yes. Well, on Thursday, Davey and I went to the drive-in in in town, and they were doing like a free movie night, and it was the never-ending story.
0: Okay, number one. Number number one, I've never been to that drive-in, let alone any drive-in.
1: Oh, it's so cute.
0: I know. I don't know why I never go. Number two, I guess I didn't know that it was operational. Number three- It had closed for like almost a full year. Okay. And number three, I've never seen The Never Ending Story, but we talked about that already. Uh,
1: It's one of my favorite childhood movies. It was like the one of like three or four that I always, always, always made someone watch with me on VHS until it probably wore out. Um, (laughs) I totally like related to the kid in the story and I just loved it. So we saw it on the big screen, (laughs) which was so fun and such a cute thing. It was, if you have a drive-in in your area, research it because... I would have never known it was there unless, like, some random person told me. And
0: oh, fun.
1: I also, speaking of last episode. Yes. I was telling you about the controversial candies.
0: Controversial candies. For
1: each holiday that I said I liked. Yes. And I couldn't oh, remember. Oh, sweethearts.
0: sweethearts. for Valentine's Day. Yes. Conversation like hearts, some people call them. Um, I love them. I feel like I don't like the white ones, but those are, like, strangely mint flavored, the right? white ones are my, f- like, white and yellow are my favorite ones controversial opinion i
1: know sweethearts are not bad i like them i know they're chalky for people but i i like the whole experience exp- yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> what's this about kit harrington
1: oh so when we don't know what to watch and we want something like light in the background and we're doing our own thing uh-huh uh we started putting on old snl episodes on hulu
0: oh my god uh did you did you watch the game of thrones kit harrington ones
1: yeah, so yeah, we watched the Game of Thrones Kit Harington one, and they have a Law and Order SVU moment with him. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. It was so funny. I was not expecting it because I've never seen that that episode. And they do like a little sketch where they're doing all these Game of Thrones spin offs because he's, yes. uh, Kit Harington was the host. Yes. And they do uh, like Law and Order, Game of Thrones, or like Game of Thrones Special Victims Unit, <laughs> and oh, they actually so get really. They actually get Mariska Hargitay and Ice T to to act in it and they're wearing like game of thrones clothes and walking down like a a city street doing SPU oh stuff
0: it's God. so funny okay i need to go watch that again i only ever watched the one where kate mckinnon plays melisandra from game of thrones oh, and you told me about i that. just die every time i had to, so funny you told me about that on the other podcast and i went and googled it
1: immediately the best <laughs> you got anything else you seem like you have other stuff
0: Oh, well, I have one item, mm. which is I'm also current on The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. And I just want to give my own opinion because we we have, Matt and I have discussed the Erica Jane, mm. Tom Girardi controversy. Yes, the whole of, case. Yes. And uh, I think she is acting on The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Like her crying definitely seems theatrical at times
1: the initial cry with all the tears and the mascara i i wasn't super suspicious of yeah it's the one when when she she shows up
0: it's not gonna be okay for a very long time and as her head to her her head and she's like doing some kind of like sailor moon fingers in front of her face like in a very strange position yes and her head is thrown it's very
1: strange um i don't know i still feel I do feel like she's acting and putting on for the show a little bit. I do. Yeah. But I think it's strategic and I think it's coming from a true place because my theory is that, yes, the divorce was happened at this particular time yeah. because of all the stuff that was coming on about Tom. But I yeah. do believe her that she was unhappy in her marriage because I don't yeah. like the idea of just discounting a woman Her saying ex- yes. that, you know, she's in an unhappy place because it looks different yes. on the outside, you know, because yes, in the housewife and the Housewife on Hulu, he's put out as like a sweetheart to the people he um, he represented, like they loved yes. him, they thought he was sweet. Yeah. And there was those messages of him being so sweet. But we know that he's not exactly that way. So if he can fool people that were shelling out all this money to
0: have him represent them, why wouldn't he be able to fool his wife for a hundred percent i totally agree i think i think she knows more than she can say she knows Mm -hmm. because she has to like protect herself in this moment yes so i think i think she probably knew a little bit about what was going on but that is not connected to necessarily how unhappy she was in the relationship Mm -hmm. so So, i don't know we'll see well should we get into our actual show (laughs) i guess (laughs) okay (laughs) <laughs> all right well i am the episode recapper and mm-hmm. this is episode 21 of season two the second to last episode of the season mm. and matt i can't wait for your you to experience this the, for the first time <laughs> yeah i'm excited to experience it i should have just like said that there was pieces of evidence picked up by a pencil because that's the only thing i'm still outstanding on huh
1: i mean you absolutely can't believe that
0: i would have given it to you on your word alone Matt, I'm I'm kind of scared. I need another piece of evidence picked up by a pencil in, like, the next episode. I know. We have to really
1: keep our eyes peeled and yeah. see if it happens. But I yeah. would say even if you don't get it and you didn't
0: fulfill the whole thing, you still did a, a damn good job. I sure did. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, this episode opens in a taxi cab. And inside of the cab is a couple. And they're fighting. And what's weird about this fight is none of the lines, like, it's not coherent dialogue. Like one person will be like, well, your mother never loved me. And then the other person will be like, I've always wanted to have more children. Like, it's just like, they're just fighting and arguing and saying lines to each other. It's, it's totally incoherent. It's like they're both arguing with somebody on the phone sitting next to each other. <laughs> that's correct. Yes, that's exactly what it's like. It's like they're having two totally different conversations. So the taxi driver almost hits a body in the street. He like sees a body on the road ahead and like breaks and like bare. he he, like the bumper goes over him, but he's doesn't hit the body. And he kind of like looks up and, and we pan to see that there's like a bridge or an overpass above the street. And so he's like, Oh, maybe this person fell or jumped from the bridge. And so Logan and Soretta arrive. Soretta again is in his David the gnome outfit. (laughs) And we learn that the man is dead and it looks like, you know, he would have fallen to his death from the bridge, but he also has stab wounds. And so we know that there is more at play than a simple fall. Hmm. So Logan gets the dead man's ID and we learn that his name is Jason Vogel. He is a councilman of the 16th district. So I will refer to him as Councilman Vogel or Vogel throughout the episode. Okay. Okay. In his wallet, none of his cash or credit cards were taken, so Logan and Saretta are like, okay, this wasn't a mugging or a robbery. This is, you know, somebody set out to kill him or, or did kill him, and we need to find out who. So we get the title sequence. I started reading an encyclopedia item by item and made it all the way through the letter L, Before the title sequence was over. Was it the Encyclopedia Britannica? It was, yes. (laughs) Do you remember that episode of Friends where Joey Joey gets sold an encyclopedia, but he can't afford the whole set, so he just buys the letter V? And then he tries to only have conversations with people about things that start with the letter V?
1: Yeah, and I feel like when he finally gets away with it, someone immediately changes the topic.
0: (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So... When we get back from the title sequence, we're in the station with Logan Saretta and Captain Cragen, and Logan is saying that uh, Councilman Vogel that night was at a benefit dinner. The doorman saw Councilman Vogel leave the dinner at about 1030, and his time of death was only a few minutes after that. So he died or was killed pretty quickly after he left this benefit dinner. And Cragen comments that Vogel is like one of the good ones. Like he's a, you know, not a crooked politician. He's fair whatever. And so he's like, we need this case solved. So we cut to the medical examiner who is a new medical examiner. I haven't met her before. I don't think, Hmm. but she has deep red hair in a full mullet, like no, like no joke, not even mullet like it is just a mullet. Oh, I have to see it. So she needs to be screen captured for fashion court.
1: Oh, I'll do it. I, I do remember another medical examiner having red hair, but I don't remember yeah.
0: a mullet. So this might be a newbie. <laughs> yeah, you get a profile view so you can see the party in the front and or the business in the front party in the back. That's what I'm all about. Yeah. Okay, so the medical examiner tells them that in addition to the stab wounds and the fall injuries, he also had a few beating wounds. But the stab wounds on him are, like, very precise, and they're designed to cause, like, a lot of internal injury, a lot of internal bleeding. So whoever stabbed him knew kind of what they were about, essentially. Mm, okay. So they go to Councilman Vogel's office, and his assistant there, or, you know, co-worker, I don't know, they never give her a name or a title— uh, but they, she tells them, you know, Vogel was a really great guy. He had no enemies. He had no competitors. He, anybody he had conflict with, he, like, was known for, like, winning them over. So, by all accounts, didn't really have anything to, to indicate motive for his murder. But when they check into his financials, because always, always we get information in the financials, we see two large deposits to his bank account, One from eight months ago and one from three months ago. And they're like, okay, these are two really large, inconsistent deposits. So let's see where that money came from. Turns out it came from his father. So that when they speak to him, his father's like, yeah, uh, Jason wanted money. Didn't tell me what it was for, but apparently they just are a wealthy family. So he just gave him like (sighs) $50,000. That's nice. Wouldn't that be nice? Oh my gosh. If I asked my dad for like $20 growing up, I felt bad. Yeah. <laughs> so they go back to the station and they're looking over Vogel's financials in greater detail and they see a pattern of large cash withdrawals over the last several months, but nothing recently. But through looking at his financials, they see regular charges to a, a place called Mulligan's. Every single week he had charges to this place called Mulligan's. And Logan's like, isn't that the place that Vice did a sting on a a little while back? And Sarah's like, yeah. So Mulligan seems to have something to do with either like sex work or drugs or illegal gambling are kind of like the three vice areas. Okay. So maybe one of those three things contributed to his murder. So they go to this Mulligan's place and speak with a man who's kind of like either the concierge or like the manager of the club and it's still really unclear to me right now what kind of club this is. Um, but he the the concierge says, like, oh, Vogel has been like struggling uh with like a, a big thing in his life. And so he reveals to Logan and Soretta that essentially Vogel was thinking about coming out of the closet, but he was worried about his family and his career. But the the concierge says, like, he didn't think it would cost him his life because The manager says that there's been a lot of assaults and murders of queer people recently, so he's like, you know, maybe that's why he was murdered. Hmm. But Saretta's like, but he hadn't come out yet, so that wouldn't be the explanation for his murder is like somebody beating up a queer person on the street right so his manager said so Soretta says he hasn't come out yet and the manager says someone was going to do it for him and hands them a magazine that he says was going to run an article on vogel outing him Hmm, so and remember he's like a a politician councilman in the early 90s yeah and he's well liked yes So they go to this magazine and talk to the editor, I guess, editor, again, we don't know his official title, but he defends the actions of his magazine. And this is the most repugnant thing I can think of. But he says that, quote, outing someone is an act of self-defense. We're at war. Wow. No, Absolutely not. Do not out people. It's not about you. It's their individual thing. So don't out people. Absolutely. But they never trouble that statement in the episode. So. Of course. His like, justification is like, he's, like, he says Vogel could have been a role model. like He could have been a, a queer man in politics. And he's like, I didn't target him specifically to out him. But when the information landed on my desk, I like, had a journalistic obligation to do this, which, I get, again, I think is scummy.
1: All he was going to do was out him, right? There's no nefarious plot at this point. It's well, ju- just that he was going to put it out that he's gay.
0: Yes. So all that he was going to publish was that Vogel was gay. And he had letters that kind of proved that Vogel was queer. And so Saretta and Logan are like, well, give us those letters. That might, ha- that might help us find who killed him. And the editor man refuses, saying he has to you know, protect his sources. Okay. So they go to Vogel's apartment and Vogel's father meets him there. And while they're looking around, Soretta asks Vogel like, uh, you know, what about his friends? Tell me about his friends." And the father is like, "Oh, you know, he had a couple friends, but you know nothing, nothing really, no close friends." And so Soretta's like, "What about intimate friends?" And Vogel senior says, "Well, there was a girl at two when he was a student at Columbia." And then Logan just says, Um, we're aware of your son's sexual orientation, which again, don't do that. (laughs) Yeah. I understand you're investigating, but anyway. Yeah. So the father is like, we've been subjected to those rumors for years, but my son is not gay. And, and then Vogel Sr. refers to queer people as freaks. So that's great. Nice. And- So they tell Vogel Sr. that they think Vogel Jr. was being blackmailed and that they think the $50,000 he borrowed from his dad was to pay his blackmailer. And while they're having this conversation, Logan is still kind of looking around the room and he discovers a shoebox full of letters and asks Vogel Sr. if his son had ever mentioned somebody named Harold. And Vogel Senior's like, well, no. And the letters that Logan has found are it are were meant to know that they are more than friendly letters like they're sort of salacious are they like salacious like sexual in content or are they like yes. sal- oh okay yes sexual in content letters mm, okay so they look at these letters and some of them are still in the envelope of the person who sent them to Vogel, Vogel Jr and so they look at that address and see that it is a prison
1: mm.
0: wow so <laughs> Back at the station, we learn more about this herald that Vogel Jr. was supposedly exchanging these letters with. Um, his name was Harold Dwyer, and he had been in prison for six years for grand larceny and assault. And he was released just two weeks before Vogel's murder. So, pretty pretty good suspect for the police at this point. I'd say so. So they go to talk to him, and he says that he met... Um, Jason Vogel threw a personal ad. Uh, Dwyer, when he was in prison, put an ad in the advocate saying, like, for other men to write him letters. And Vogel sent him a letter. And their kind of, like, correspondence began from there. Mm, okay. So they they kind of ask him if he was involved in blackmailing Vogel. But Dwyer says, like, how could I have been? Like, I didn't even know his last name because he, like, signed him all, like, Jason V. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, like, besides, Vogel, in his letters, said he was going to help me get on my feet when I got out of prison, so, like, why would I blackmail him or murder him if he was offering to help me already? Yeah, they were, like, friends. Yeah. So, on the street, Logan and Saretta kind of debate whether Dwyer is telling the truth or not, because he kind of like me there's indications that maybe he just conned vogel into a romantic correspondence in order to dupe him for money potentially Mm -hmm. so they look into his other correspondence records at the prison and see that he kept correspondence with six other men in new york city and vogel being one of them Mm -hmm. so they ask for copies of all of the Uh, letters, or at least the information on who these men are that Dwyer was corresponding with from prison. And they go and talk to one man whose name we, I don't think, ever get. Uh, But he explains that he saw Dwyer's ad in The Advocate and answered it, and that Dwyer started sending him some raunchy letters. But once Dwyer started getting kind of, quote-unquote, raunchy, uh, this guy stopped writing back to him. Hmm. But a few weeks later... After he stopped writing, he got a phone call from a man who said he was a friend of Dwyer's and said that he had the letters that he and Dwyer had exchanged. And while he didn't, like, directly threaten him, he says he wants $5,000 a month to keep the letters private. This guy, fortunately, was in a position where he's like, I'm out and I don't care who knows it. So I obviously was not going to give him any money. Right. So Logan and Saretta are, are trying to figure out who, who might this man be that was kind of the interme- intermediary between Dwyer and the men that he was writing letters to. And they ask the man if the phone call was collect or not. And he says, no, it wasn't collect, but like, why do you ask? And they say, you know, calls from prison can only be collect. So it obviously wasn't Dwyer directly calling him. Hmm. So Logan and Soretta try to kind of interview some of the other men that Dwyer had been writing letters to, but being queer men or men who are attracted to men in some way in the early 90s, none of them are super interested in speaking to the police, especially because like three of them are married. So, you know, not super interested in giving up information about the correspondence they had had with a man in prison. Right. So they go and look at Dwyer's visitor logs in prison and see that his lawyer had been visiting him every single week. And they're like, that's really weird. That's a lot of, like, lawyering service for somebody who has been convicted over six years ago. And there's no nothing to, like, appeal at this point because he's, like, due to be getting out of prison. Yeah. And... The man who that they had just talked with, who said that he got a phone call from Dwyer's friend, described him as kind of like slick and pushy. And so they're thinking like, oh, maybe the lawyer is like a slick and pushy guy who was calling to ask these men for money in order to keep the correspondence with Dwyer silent. Hmm. So they go to the lawyer's office and his name is Peter Coulson. And he's kind of cagey with them at first, but when they say that they think Dwyer had help on the outside... He tells Logan and Saretta, you know, contact my lawyer. I'm done talking to you. On the way out of the lawyer's office, they stop by the mail room and talk to a... <laughs> this is another person who needs to be on fashion court. They talk to a woman who is dressed as though she is about to head for an audition for the pumpkin in It's a Great Pumpkin, <laughs> Charlie Brown. Because it's just like a, a, a spherical orange outfit that she's wearing. Like she's in the audience of uh, Let's Make a Deal. Yes, 100%. That's exactly right. So she tells them a courier service comes with packages for the lawyer, Peter Coulson, every single week, and the packages get taken directly to his office. None of it gets opened at the mailroom. So they go to talk to the courier service, and they basically tell the woman there, like, next time you get a call for a courier being delivered to Peter Coulson, we need you to call us. So... Cragen gets them a warrant to check the delivery, and when they get the phone call that a courier is on the way to Mr. Coulson's office, they head to his office and have him open the contents in front of them, and inside the packages, we see envelopes full of cash. They ask him to come down to the precinct and interrogate him along with his lawyer, and they basically... Tell the, his lawyer basically tells Logan and Soretta like you don't have enough evidence to arrest my client. Otherwise, you already would have. So we're done here. We're leaving. So they get up and leave. And Robinette, this is like the law and the the order side kind of starts to come in at this point. And so Robinette had been lo- observing the interrogation. DA Robinette. And he's like, yeah, we don't really have enough to arrest him. We need to find out who gave Vogel's letters to the magazine, because that person must be the blackmailer. But of course, remember, the editor didn't want to give up that information. But Robinette and Stone kind of concoct this plan of like, they don't suspect he's involved in the blackmail or the murder, but they decide that they're going to imply that they think he was a co-conspirator in it. And so they bring him to his office and are like, hey, listen, you can choose to not give up your sources or you can and, you know, and we'll prosecute you for a co-conspirator or you can just give us your sources. Well, that sounds so. like an easy choice. <laughs> Doesn't it? So their current theory is that Dwyer was blackmailing Vogel and some of these other men through his lawyer, Carlson. And that when Vogel refused to keep paying Dwyer, someone killed him. So they get information on another man that Dwyer had been corresponding with and blackmailing. And his name is George Harris. And he's, I guess, works for like the the MLB, the Major League Baseball company? Organization? Organization. (laughs) Sure. Um, And this guy is basically like, yes, I corresponded with Vogel, but I can't afford to have this come out. I'm I'm married, I work in a—essentially, he doesn't say this, but he's like, I work in a highly homophobic industry, so I can't, you know, be an out queer man working for the Major League Baseball yeah. organization. So he says that, you know, he was being blackmailed and that he was asked for $50,000, which he gave them, but it was supposed to stop at that point. And then he says, but they came back for more, and they told me that they wanted another $25,000. And he says he doesn't ever know who the person was on the phone that called him. And so Logan and Saretta ask, could you recognize his voice? And he's like, well, I don't need to because I recorded the calls in case this ever, like, came up or I needed them for my protection or whatever. That feels like a very common law
1: and order device for these first two seasons. Someone secretly—so many times the big bombshell was someone secretly recorded something.
0: Yes, secretly (laughs) recorded their blackmail conversations. Yes. So even though he says, I've got these tapes, I've got these recordings, I am not going to cooperate with you because I can't testify, I can't let any of this get out, and Stone says, like, we'll subpoena you to testify, and Harris says, like, I'd rather go to jail. Mm -hmm. So Stone goes back and talks to Vogel Sr., the, the father of the man who's been murdered, and tells him that without Harris's, the baseball guy's testimony, they essentially have nothing, And so Robinette says, wait a minute, what if we could seal the courtroom, like no cameras, no witnesses, and that would protect Harris's identity so that we can get him to testify. And Stone is kind of like, you know, I think that we might be able to pull that off because he is a victim of the same blackmailing scheme that a person was murdered over. So we can make this argument that his life might be in danger. So... Um, They go to convince George Harris to speak with the judge and tells him that it'll it'll be a, a closed courtroom, and so he's like, okay, okay, fine. However, suddenly we get a plot twist where the magazine editor man files a motion with the court to prevent this courtroom from being closed, essentially arguing that it prevents the freedom of the press if they close this courtroom. And at this point, I was like, why does he care? Like, what is this to you? Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, George backs out of testimony. He's like, nope, not going to do it. uh, Because the judge over the judge that they bring the motion before says, yeah, we're not going to close this courtroom. It has to be open to the press. Otherwise, we are infringing on the freedom of the press. And we have to preserve that because it's one of our constitutional rights. Mm -hmm. So Harris backs out, as I said, but they've got both his tapes and they've got transcripts of his testimony before the other judge. Cause I, he has like a little pretrial hearing where he talks to just the judge, but it's transcribed. And so they're like, okay, he might not testify, but we have his recordings and we have the records of his testimony that we can bring as evidence in his absence, essentially.
1: Hmm. Okay.
0: So they go to meet with Dwyer's lawyer, um, the one who is accused of co conspirating in blackmail with Dwyer. He immediately confesses to being involved in the blackmail, but he says he wasn't involved in the murder. He says that Vogel Jr. decided to stop paying Dwyer. And so Dwyer went to Vogel's father, the old man who we've kind of been with the whole episode, and got him to pay him off because that father wants to keep his son's secret which really upset Vogel Jr. because apparently Vogel Jr. was like, I'm tired of being blackmailed. I'm tired of being in the closet. I am just going to come out. And so he had told them, like, you can't blackmail me anymore. I'm going to I'm going to come out, you know, whatever. So he told them, I'm going to tell the police that you've been blackmailing me and I'm going to come out. So there's your kind of motive was both the lawyer and Dwyer were going to be uh, kind of turned over to the police for running a blackmail conspiracy. Mm. So Vogel Sr., they realize, has known this the whole time because Dwyer had come and asked him for the money. So they're like, hey, we've been talking to you since the beginning of this, and you've been hiding information from us. Uh, And it's information that is protecting your son's killers. And he says, quote, that's my business, and I intend to keep it that way. Because he's apparently willing to let his son's murder go unavenged or unsolved so that he can protect the secret about his son's sexuality.
1: Disgusting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And they also realized that Vogel senior must have been the person pulling the strings for the editor to get them to file the motion to open the courtroom because he wanted to make sure Harris couldn't testify that way. They couldn't drag his son into this either. <sighs> So Vogel's willing to let, you know, the whole case of his son's murder get ruined so that they can protect the secret, but they eventually subpoena him, and despite—this man is, by the way, very politically powerful, he's very wealthy, so he's, like, throwing his political weight around— and they finally get him before a jury anyway, and he's very hostile. And what's really funny is he, Stone asks him a question, and he doesn't respond. And then Stone asks the judge permission to treat this as a hostile witness, and the judge gives him permission. And then he just keeps asking questions. But now he's answering them. Okay. So I don't, so I don't understand what that meant to handle him as a hostile witness, because his mode of questioning really didn't change. Right. Anyway. He finally admits that his son was gay on the stand and that he would have paid, quote, any amount of money to keep that a secret. So now they have enough to link Dwyer to Vogel Jr.'s murder and he and his lawyer Colson to all of the blackmail. And so the jury comes back in the next scene with a verdict of guilty for grand larceny and guilty of murder in the second degree for Harold Dwyer. Mm. And... Then we have kind of like a little closing scene between Robinette Stone and Schiff where they like talk about father's love and it's just weird Mm -hmm. and stupid and that's the end of the episode. Oh my gosh. Wow. So as I was watching this episode the whole time I was like cringing because obviously it was so like homophobic in a lot of Mm -hmm. ways. And I was like, wow, if I hate this episode, I'm probably really gonna hate the case that it's based on. Well, good job. Thanks for taking care of that for me. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> do
0: you feel like you were there? I
1: do. I'm 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 actually looking forward to to watching it to see the, the few fashion call outs and just to see how terrible they were to our community.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Well, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. This case or this episode was actually inspired by nothing. There was no true oh. crime related mm-hmm. to it that I could okay. find. But Okay. I found a case that I think is relatively related, so Okay. I am covering the case of Paul Broussard and those who would be known as the Woodlands 10.
0: Ooh, the, that name Paul Broussard sounds familiar. Da, 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 da.
1: Okay, so on the evening of July 3rd, 1991, going into the early morning, you know, post-midnight hours of July 4th. So th- okay. the events happen on July 4th, but you know... How you, most people don't consider it the next day until you go to bed and wake up. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So evening of July 3rd, July 4th, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So on that day, July 3rd slash 4th, 1991, three gay men were partying in the nightclubs in the Montrose area of Houston, Texas. Oh, okay. Montrose is the name of a street for which the little community was named. And at the time it was known as like an LGBTQ area for the early 90s. Whatever that meant for the early
0: 90s in Texas, which it wasn't a lot. (laughs) I mean, yeah, basically it was like, maybe you might not get assaulted if you go to these bars. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So any gay bars
1: that did exist at that time in Houston were in the Montrose area. But of course, there were other businesses there as well. It wasn't particularly known as an up and coming area. It was kind of described in a few of the articles and something I watched as an area that hadn't yet sort of come up. You know, okay. a lot of Houston was coming up, and this area was late to catch up.
0: I feel like that's very common for, like, queer, safe— Oh, totally. —or, like, you know, queer neighborhoods or areas of any city, especially back exactly. then.
1: Exactly. Because, you know, people who are forgotten by society go to places where they're better forgotten by society. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yep.
1: So the area was generally populated by queer folks, as we said, as well as runaways and sex workers, which is also pretty common at the time. Yeah. 27 year old paul broussard and his friends carrie anderson and richard delaney or delaney is it carrie uh a man a woman? they're both they're Do both men know? these are the three gay men okay. that were in the area okay great and they're walking across the parking lot to a night uh from a nightclub called heaven and they've just been kind of out having a good time they've been kind of partying so- the fourth of july weekend <laughs> or whatever it was
0: it's so weird that you're covering a case with a bar called Heaven when that was the Cielo? case that I t- covered. Yeah. yeah, Cielo. I think it's funny that the when we had an actual gay bar in Santa Barbara, like not just one night of the week, right? Uh, it was called Hades. No
1: way. Yeah. That's so funny. I don't know how I feel about that.
0: <laughs> I feel a lot of <laughs> ways
1: about that, good and bad. Yeah. <laughs> so while they've been out having a good time, there was a party going on in a nearby suburb. That's known as the Woodlands, even till today. This was a planned community, and it's, it was known to be pretty nice at the time, even. And in 2021, it was voted number one best city to live in America by Niche.com. What? So, I don't know uh, how great Niche.com <laughs> or how widespread they are, but right now, it's apparently the number one city to
0: live in America, according to them. Well, uh, we're also the number one podcast in the country, according to me. So. <laughs> to me.com. <laughs> 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 So the party
1: going on over in the Woodlands, it's a high school party, and there's a group of about 10 young men that end up leaving the party, uh, you know, in the late hours of the evening into the next day, same like the three guys over in the Heaven parking lot. Mm -hmm. And they've been at this party drinking and partying themselves, you know, they're high school kids, but there was known to be like alcohol, um, marijuana, LSD, that's all that was listed for things that they may have partaken in, allegedly. Okay. Okay. So the, the young men are aged fifteen to seventeen, with the exception of one who's twenty-two, and all of them besides the twenty-two year old go to high school together.
0: I would hope the twenty-two year old <laughs> wasn't going to high well, school them. Well, you know
1: no, I'm not gonna judge. <laughs> yeah. So they all leave the party, they've been having a good time, and they head over to Montrose to hit up some bars or clubs to see if they can get in. Um, none of them are gay, but they're looking for just general bars in like kind of a in their mind crappy part of town where they might be able to get in without an ID. So they go over down to the area, and they pull up and they ask Paul and his two friends, who are in the Heaven parking lot at this point, this is where they converge, they ask them for directions, and as Paul and his friends were speaking to them, at approximately 2 a.m. on July 4th in the morning, all of the car doors swing open, and the 10 men attack the trio of gay men.
0: Was this a clown car? How were there 10 of them there, inside a car? There are
1: several cars. <laughs> okay. All three of the men were assaulted, but uh-huh. Carrie Anderson and Richard Delaney were able to escape the assailants and flee the scene. Uh-huh. This caused the group to all surround Paul Broussard, and at least five of these 10 boys were attacking him with fists, steel-toed boots, bear claws,
0: and one of the boys had a pocket
1: knife. Okay, a couple um, things. One, uh-huh.
0: I only know bear claw as a pastry. Right. So what is a bear claw as a weapon? Yes,
1: I had to do the same thing immediately. And okay. you're never going to believe what it is. If this is what they actually used, I can't even believe it. Is it like brass knuckles with claws at the end? Similar. Yeah, it's kind of okay. like what Wolverine had on
0: his hands. Oh, yeah. Okay. Wow. Right? Okay. <sighs> and then. Okay, N- okay wait. Two, the next two thing? more things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number one, why do high school students have those? Hello. Two. I'm just going to say, if you are inclined to just beat the shit out of somebody because of one of their identities, I think that says a lot about you uh, I as mean, a person. Like, maybe you check your own issues with yourself before you address them on a stranger.
1: Maybe? <laughs> yeah, I would, I would uh, strongly agree. Yeah. When they finish the attack... Paul is barely conscious on the ground, and they pilfer through his belongings and take his comb as a souvenir, and they flee back to the Woodlands community. Okay. Now, before I get into the events that unfold next, I want to talk a little bit about the culture at the time, and how gay men and queer people in general were looked at, treated, and, you know, what he was up against. Yeah. So this event occurred, like I said, in 1991. And it was Mm -hmm. only just shy of 1980 when Anita Bryant on national news said, as a mother, I know that homosexuals cannot biologically reproduce children. Therefore, they must recruit our children. And that was like a widely accepted belief. That was, she was the one who Harvey Milk was up against the whole time.
0: Well, you know, what's so funny is like, I've known people who have said things like oh the the you know the gays are taking over the world and it's like um how (laughs) right
1: right right or in 1981 a decade just a decade before this event some of the first reported cases of aids in the usa come to light that june and that so starts the aids epidemic in america aids will continue to claim the lives of people you know until today and Onward, and by 2020, 600,000 people, more than 600,000 people, had lost their lives to struggling with AIDS. Yeah. This disease, this virus, and the way that it was portrayed to the media, you know, it was looked at as a gay disease or a disease brought by immigrants or queer people or intravenous drug users only, but especially gay people. And then in that regard, gay people were associated with intra- intravenous gr- drug users.
0: Yes. So instantly,
1: yeah. anyone who had any negative feelings about gay people at all instantly latch onto the idea that gay people are drug addicts and are even more disposable in their minds.
0: Hopefully. I mean, because when a disease happens to have a higher prevalence in any community that is marginalized or oppressed in some way the majority often sees that disease as connected to some kind of moral failing. Like, yeah. if you hadn't lived this life, you would have been spared this disease, right. which is not how disease works at all. The government at the time did essentially nothing and everything they could to further that stigma and offer zero support to the queer community.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. So much... You're going to just hate this. Um... <laughs> One thing I learned about the AIDS epidemic and how it was treated in the early years that I didn't really know, um, and I've read a, just two articles mention this, but they both credited a lot of what cemented the LGBTQ plus community together because it sort of, it brought multiple groups under the queer umbrella, for lack mm-hmm. of a better term, together struggling against the same Disease and all feeling unheard together. Yes. And then they had to rely on each other, which previously uh, they really hadn't had to do. Everyone was kind of hiding in their own little communities for the most part. And this was a big moment in queer history where a lot of the different, you know, groups under the queer umbrella got together and fought together, and there was a lot more visibility. Yes. So, I mean, we could do a whole podcast on this topic but i just want <laughs> you know just to Context. set the scene at this time when people heard gay or gay men they heard AIDS HIV
0: i mean i talk about that all the time where i i think one of the reasons it took me so long to come out was literally as a child who grew up in the 80s all literally all i ever saw were queer people dying of HIV mm-hmm. and AIDS. That was like the only image I saw. And so, I mean, I think that that's absolutely a factor in how people perceive themselves or, or things that they might be a member of in a really problematic way. Oh, I
1: couldn't agree more. And thank you for sharing that because that's very personal and I appreciate that. I couldn't agree more. I I a lot of what kept me in the closet for so long were fears like that. And when I was really little and I first started to understand that I was gay and I understood what it was that made me different, Mm -hmm. I really thought when I heard the word age and HIV that that was just something that you got if you, if you quote unquote decided to be gay. Because that's what I was being told (laughs) it was. You decided to be gay. So me thinking I was gay as a kid and thinking that I was, it was just something I was, you know, inventing in my head and it was going to maybe kill me if I ever actually acted on it I mean yeah. that to- totally was a belief I had for for a lot of my youth yeah. and even when you get rid of the belief like you understand the reality like oh okay that's not the same thing it doesn't change the, how that affected you believing that for so long
0: well and also the disease essentially caused like mass death of an entire generation mm-hmm. of queer people and so Queer people who came after them had so far fewer elder elders or um, you know possibility models or role models right. to look up to because they had all died. Right, right.
1: It like, and those that were living with H AIDS and HIV at the time, and I'm sure this is not wildly different. I hope it's a lot different, but it was almost unheard of for queer folks to be getting adequate treatment or healthcare because they were being stigmatized and. Essentially, healthcare workers were afraid to take yeah. people in because they were worried that they were going to catch it or that they were going to infect their, you know, population and all this. So, getting yeah, actual <laughs> healthcare,
0: forget it. Well, sure, and you know there was very little governmental like support for research and treatment into a disease that was primarily affecting a. Percentage of the community that the government just didn't give a shit about exactly
1: exactly so queer people were dying by the hundreds the, th- the thousands effectively wiping out people's entire social networks friends networks families safe spaces you know it left hundreds of queer youth and other runaways homeless forced into yeah. poverty um, there was a rise in suicide rates and drug use among queer youth at the time and a lot of people were abandoned by their families to just die of the virus because they were ashamed of them for having it at all. Yeah. In 1985, just a few years before this happened, Reverend Jerry Falwell said of the crisis, "Quote: AIDS is not just God's punishment for homosexuals; it's God's punishment for the society that tolerates homosexuals."
0: Which mm. is exactly
1: like what you were saying before. Yeah. <laughs> in Houston, Mayor Louis Welch in 1985 said the best way to address the AIDS epidemic was to start by, quote, shooting the queers. This oh, is the mayor my of that God. town in 1985, only six years before this happened. Wow. Okay. So this is the kind of attitude. Or I'm sorry. Th- I'm sorry. That wasn't even, that was 1995, I believe, four years after oh. it might have been. Either way, either way. What, I, I don't know if I got the date wrong, but that was the attitude within that decade.
0: That's the kind of thing, if that person is now dead, I would not be upset if somebody went to their graveyard and, like, scoured that into their headstone. (laughs) He is is dead. Uh, (laughs) um, And this quote, I just,
1: I have to share. This is a quote I read. Just five years before Broussard's death, Dallas Judge Jack Hampton had gone easy on an 18-year-old who, with a pal, had shot to death two gay men on the grounds that prostitutes and gays are about the same level i'd be hard put to give somebody life for killing a prostitute Ugh, so damn, this I is what is the people right this is the world that everyone lived in at this time but this is the world that paul broussard lived in as he's fighting for his life on on the ground yeah also in houston right where this is happening and on the montrose this happened a lot Queer folks are being arrested at alarming rates, sometimes just for being gay. Yep. Um, for other times, it's for trespassing or public intoxication, but it's usually because they were kicked out of an establishment for being gay, um, bystanders didn't like that they were around gay people and would call the cops on them, and then they would be yep. arrested for, for something, whatever
0: they could do. And there was a like documented pattern of police uh, like entrapping or leveling false accusations of solicitation upon queer people as well
1: oh get ready get ready for this and this is where i wanted to kind of put you on the spot for a second oh okay fun so the next piece of information includes the word fag Mm, yeah what are your thoughts about that word
0: um as as somebody who has had that yelled at me from a car (laughs) driving by Mm -hmm. i don't love it i yeah i don't I don't love it. I know that we have tried to reclaim it. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is a certain power in saying like, no, this is our word now. And it doesn't, it's no longer a word that will oppress us. And I feel like most of the time people wouldn't necessarily like look favorably upon you saying that. But, you know, like I have so many uh, people on social media who are, queer folks, and they will, like, use the little, like, cigarette emoji with an apostrophe S to, like, refer to facts, oh, essentially. Uh-huh. I, like, that doesn't bother me, because it's, like, us talking about ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I was I curious mean, I guess, what
1: your take on it was, because I I don't know
0: exactly how I feel about it. I think I feel pretty similarly to you. Yeah. Um, I think, like, if I were to say it, I would say it in the same way that I jokingly say, like, oh, the gays. Yeah, you know Like, yeah. I'm obviously mocking the way that this word has originally been used or phrase has originally been used. And so I think there's, I think there is power in that. And so I understand why some folks like use the word, want to use the word, et cetera.
1: Yeah. Okay. I, I was curious what you thought about that because I know a lot of people in the LGBT community you know, they use that word freely, and I, for the same reasons I understand, and I don't take offense when, like, another queer person says it to or about me in, like, a, you know, like, oh, these are my fags, or whatever, I don't know. <laughs> um Or, like, that's very faggy, or whatever, like, I don't take offense to it when it's someone in my community, and we're in, like, a environment where it feels natural to come up, like, it wasn't, well, like, a thing, but I just feel like... I still don't like the word personally, on a personal level. So while I won't take offense to it, if anyone else says it, and I understand, and I think there is power in reclaiming the word. Yeah, it's still so triggering for me to even hear it even from a gay person.
0: Yeah. And I think that, you know, there's so much context and subtext that matters when that word is used, right? Like, if another queer person used it to indicate that they were like deriding a person's identity or behavior because they were like too feminine or whatever that is, because that's often what it's directed to. Like that's a problem because you're perpetuating your own oppression. But if it's obviously not in any way meant to be either self-deprecating or insulting to another person, and it's said by another queer person then I'm like, hey, that's your word. Go for it.
1: Yeah. I'm wondering if it'll ever, for me at least, feel like the word queer does to me now. Because when I yeah. was little, queer was like a dirty word. Yes, and now I prefer definitely. it. <laughs> yes. So I, I, I wonder if it'll ever be like that. I kind of hope it does. And I kind of hope it goes away forever at the same time. So yeah. yeah. But all that, you know, thank you for entertaining me with that. Because I, I just, yeah, I hate saying that word, but I want to yeah. say it because it's in the case um Mm -hmm. but i just i don't like saying it yeah i guess so in 1984 it was reported that for years houston pd had a quote fag file Mm. where they quote were keeping a list of local homosexuals their names group photos license plate numbers and other personal information of the gays that they would arrest for these offenses so they can keep track on them and you know track them Mm. (laughs) Gay business owners themselves were afraid to report attacks happening in their own community at their own establishments on their property because they were afraid of losing business, number one, um, but also no longer being considered one of the only, like, safe spaces for queer folks to go to. Right. So they were even keeping hush-hush and taking care of things, you know, under the table by themselves. So even the numbers that are reported are so, so wildly skewed. Because not only yes. do you have those who don't report at all, but you have those that happen in public places where, you know, the community just takes care of each other. Right. So back to Paul Broussard. He's lying on the parking lot. As we know, he's barely conscious. And the EMS staff arrives hours, hours, hours after the attack. Hours? Mm-hmm. It doesn't say how no. they got there, but they just say EMS staff arrived and tended to him hours after the attack in the early morning hours of July 4th.
0: I mean, we have talked in many, many different episodes about different communities' mistrust of police for super valid reasons. So I could also understand if either of these men who got away didn't feel safe to call the police. Sure, of course. Um, When
1: the EMS are treating him, Paul, he is still conscious enough to speak, so he requests Mm -hmm. to be taken to St. Joe's Medical Center for treatment, and the EMS team deemed the situation warranted, quote, low-priority transport, which means no lights or sirens. So the trip that could have taken eight minutes took 40 minutes.
0: Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. When they Ugh. arrive at the hospital, it takes an hour to find a doctor to see Paul. So it's now been hours since the attack, mm-hmm. 40 minutes since the ambulance, and another hour or more waiting for a doctor's attention. So it's like been f- potentially at four to five hours since he was attacked.
1: Yes. Yes. Wow. Later that evening in the hospital, Paul passes away from internal injuries and the ME adds to the report quote a delay in treatment, <laughs> which I'm glad they added I, that
0: wh- to I the was- report. I was going to ask, you might cover this, but did they, did any of the things you read give any indication of whether he would have been able to be saved if they had gotten to him on time? So there's not anything too explicit. It's the hospital obviously doesn't want to take
1: responsibility and people want to say that they did what they were supposed to do and all that. But it is widely, widely believed that he would have absolutely, absolutely lived had he been treated sooner. Yeah. Ray Hill is a civil rights gay activist, um, I think still to this day. Okay. And he arrives at the scene of where Paul Broussard was just attacked. and So Paul's body's just been transported to the hospital. Ray Hill, the civil rights activist, arrives at the scene, and Detective Wayman Allen tells him, quote, It's not a homicide, it's an assault, and it's not an assailant unknown case. There was no yellow tape up at the scene. And Ray Hill was told that there was no intention to pursue
0: the case. So. No intention to pursue the case. Correct. When a group of 10 people assaults and nearly kills someone. Right.
1: I mean, at this time, all they know is that someone has been killed. And because of where it is, I don't think they care. Oh, yeah. I guess they don't know it was
0: 10 men, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
1: Hill already known at the time for being like i said a very public voice for queer rights and victims rights um he's very loud and very i i really like this guy he realizes that he has to now you know take advantage of this terrible situation he knows that this tragedy needs to reach mainstream media and so many times people are killed in his community and no one ever hears about it and yeah andrew edmondson an activist and friend of Paul's who actually saw him the night he was attacked and killed, and he himself was also assaulted that same night hours before in the Montrose area (laughs) for being gay. Mm -hmm. He says, quote, at the time, there was a feeling gays were second-class citizens. It was just someone queer in Montrose that got killed, and there was no sense of urgency about getting a response and getting the person to the hospital. And he continued to say, there was this groundswell of energy and anger, a sense that, We have got to do something. We cannot let this go uncovered by the media. We cannot let HPD not take action and not try to find the killers, end quote. The community felt that Paul was a relatable figure. He was 27 years old, young, ordinary guy. Um, He was a banker, a college graduate, no criminal record. They felt that people would be outraged by this no matter what, and people were. When the news got out of this attack, people were outraged, and so... He took advantage of this and worked with organizations like ACT UP and more specifically Queer Nation. Mm -hmm. And they did tons of press wherever they can get it. They appeared on TV shows, talk shows. They organized rallies and marches within days of the attack. And they did, they organized a Take Back the Streets rally that was set to shut down Montrose on July 13th of that same year, just Mm -hmm. uh, less than two weeks after the attack. And they expected about an attendance of 300 people maybe and mm-hmm. closer to 2000 showed up wow. and they shut down the area for over an hour. Good for them. Yeah. This rally remains the largest demonstration of its kind in Houston still today. Wow. And it was the first time that the community felt that anybody who wasn't queer actually cared because the reason there were so many people there was because there were so many people who were, who were not queer.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: This event worked. It got tons and tons of political publicity and it ended up getting paul's murder to the front page of media outlets and on nightly and daytime news paul's mother nancy rodriguez she works very closely with roy hill the activist and Mm -hmm. participates in most of these events um and is you know right out there on the front lines for all of it and she's speaks very emotionally and very what's the word i'm looking for candidly Yeah, that that works. Yeah, she speaks very emotionally and candidly about her feelings, about what's going on, about her son being targeted for being queer. And in all of the interviews, it's being labeled as a a gay bashing event. Mm -hmm. And the hate crimes didn't exist yet. So gay bashing was really the term that existed back then for this type of thing. And Hill really latched onto it. There wasn't an interview he was in that he didn't talk about this. Even after this was happening, people, queer people were living in fear in the area, even with the public outcry seeming to be in their favor for once. The attitude that they had and the advice that they were being given was, if you go out at night, you run to your car when you get out of wherever you're going, you have your keys in your hand before you leave the building— you get in ASAP. It's basically all the like quote unquote rules that are given to rape survivors or was young women at night, say, like, you know. Yeah, this is what we tell women to do. Right. Which is, you know, it's great to be prepared, but it's not ultimately helpful. It, in the long run. Like it and he says even in the interviews, he's like, I'm not trying to put the, you know, onus on the victim to protect themselves or, or put them make them feel like they're responsible for not doing things or whatever. But right. it is all we have right now.
0: Right. Like since this problem exists, we should find ways to protect ourselves from it. But the focus needs to be on stopping this terrible stuff from happening. So nobody needs to have their keys in their hands and running from one building to their car. Totally. I mean, I still walk
1: with my keys in, in between my fingers at night if I'm walking outside. Oh, really? Oh, I do. Yeah, I totally do. Gay rights groups in the area get together and they fight to form community watches and they're able to do it successfully, actually with the cooperation of Houston PD. The media attention of the rally and everything coming afterwards causes the girlfriend of one of the 10 unknown assailants to come forward and identify her boyfriend as one of them.
0: Good for her. Mm-hmm.
1: All 10 men are ultimately identified as, and this is the only time I'm reading all of their names. Okay. <laughs> And forgive me if I can't pronounce it. So, uh, Jaime Aguiar, Javier Aguiar, Derek Attard, John Bice, Chance Paul Dillon, Rafael Gonzalez, Galen Randall, Leandro Ramirez, Brian Spake, and Jeffrey Valentine.
0: There were a lot of first and last names I have never heard in yeah. that list.
1: Yeah. <laughs> i apologize maybe when you read them you'll be like oh that's what he was saying (laughs) (laughs) so these 10 uh young men will become known as the woodlands 10 because they live in the woodlands john bice turns himself in out of these 10 and all the rest were arrested and they all all 10 of them end up signing confessions
0: nice
1: hill and rodriguez lobbied for meaningful sentencing for them hill being the activist if you remember and rodriguez being um nancy rodriguez paul's mother the victim's mother mm-hmm. they want meaningful sentencing and for the first time in the county's history the victim's family was given significant say in the sentencing process wow yeah interesting so she had a lot of say in in what ended up happening to some of these boys which was pretty groundbreaking here's what they were all ends up given. So the five five of the boys were found to be not responsible for his death, and they didn't participate in the actual beating. They were just sort of there around. Mm-hmm. So these five boys were all sentenced to 10 years for murder, but deferred. And because of Paul's mother, they were all given probation at her request.
0: So she requested
1: a that, lighter sentence for them?
0: She did. That is a lot of mercy and kindness that I would not necessarily expect a right. victim of or the mother of a victim of murder
1: right yeah and she was very supportive of her son she supported him being out and um they were you know she had two other kids that also were supportive of him so paul chance Dillon was sentenced to 20
0: years for attempted mm. murder is he the 22 year old um i think he might have been the, i think he might have been the 22 year old actually okay Seems like it would make sense that the oldest would have gotten the harshest sentence.
1: Well, you'll see that is not actually the case. Oh, well, great. (laughs) So he is sentenced to 20 years. He ends up serving only six of them. And he's released in 2000 because some sort of law got repealed that just worked in his favor. Great. So I didn't see any word on Ramirez uh, where he is now. But Leandro Ramirez was sentenced to 15 years in one day. I don't know what the one day is, but there's that. (laughs) And both Jaime and Javier Aguiar were also sentenced to 15 years in one day for murder. And they were both paroled, I believe, in 2007 at the end of that sentence. Bice, he is the one who gets the harshest sentence. So we've covered the other nine of them. So five of them got probation. Three of them got 15 years in a day. One of them, I don't know what happened with him, but the other two got out. After, uh, in 2007. And then we have Paul Dillon, who got attempted murder instead of murder. He got out, you know, at the short period of time because of that law. John Bice is the one who had the pocket knife. So he's the one who used the pocket knife to stab him. And that is what they believe was the most serious injury that ultimately resulted in his death, in addition to lack of care. Yeah. And so he is actually sentenced to 45 years. Wow. Okay. There was no trial. They all took a plea
0: bargain uh, to get these sentences. Wow. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's one of the, like, when there are 10 people involved and the police, like, know who all 10 of them are and, like, have good evidence on any of them, like, the odds of you being able to, like, convince a jury otherwise are so small. Like, Mm -hmm. you kind of have to take the plea deal at that point.
1: Yeah, and I don't know what other evidence they had against them other than what the girlfriend said, but I imagine they, I know that both the other survivors of the attack participated in you know identifying all, everybody yeah. and oh, they, yeah, yeah. they flew in I, or they came down and the mother flew in and everything so i i'm sure that 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 was helpful in, in, you know securing this plea bargain and all that
0: yeah
1: bice he's been denied parole five times until 2015 when he was finally released to the custody of his father with extreme supervision hmm. now this decision however controversial, was actually supported by both the mother of the victim, Ms. Rodriguez, and uh, Roy Hill, that activist who worked so hard to get everybody imprisoned. Right. So Rodriguez, she's actually supported his early release several times. And there's a documentary that covers some of this. I didn't see it. I couldn't find it. But I found a a trailer for it. Okay. Um, In 2006, a documentary called The Guy with the Knife comes out. Mm. And it's about Hill, the activist, his friendship with Bice since his imprisonment. Huh. And apparently Hill has spent a lot of time getting to know him over the years. And this is a quote from from the activist Hill. He says, I lied to get media attention to get Houston police to solve a gay murder. It was wrong, but it worked. Now I'm doing what I have to do on behalf of John Bice.
0: Wait, what did he lie about?
1: So basically he says that after talking to him for a long time, and really getting to know him, he doesn't believe anymore that this was a homophobic event. Hmm. He says that, according to Bice, and agreed upon by him and by Paul's mother, that this was more about peer pressure, thrill-seeking, drugs and alcohol, the influence of LSD, and the idea of being macho in front of all these other guys. Okay, so following the murder of Matthew Shepard, Bice, in prison writes a letter to Nancy Rodriguez. Um, Okay. And in the letter, he writes asking for nothing. Um, He doesn't ask for anything. He just wants to apologize for what he's done to her son. It says, quote, I have gained a more relative understanding of what took place that night in Houston. Never could I possibly imagine I would take a human life or take part in any action which would inflict fatal injuries. But the fact remains, I did participate and I have taken responsibility for this. Of course, I knew I was wrong. I made poor decisions. After years here in prison, I see how disruptive my life and attitudes were. I've learned of some hateful actions taken against the minority of a different sexual orientation. This wounds my heart, and I'm appalled to know that I too was involved in this type of action. Um, in speaking with him, you find that he has a lot of friends and family that are gay that he's been supportive of, and I think that this all and other conversations with him is what leads them to believe that this actually wasn't motivated by right. homophobia. Okay. And while I can see all of this and I, you know, I understand and I'm shocked at their mercy and grace, I would still argue he still killed somebody. Yeah. Like yes, maybe he didn't do it because he was gay, maybe. But he still killed somebody. And so I wouldn't yeah. be fighting so hard to get him out. And I I think the the issue is that and what the documentary also ends up highlighting is that all the boys were given plea bargains as though they were being tried as adults without a trial and the confessions were given willingly, but without any attorneys present.
0: Hmm.
1: So, you know, whatever. The only thing I would really for sure agree with about the documentary or what it seems to be telling is that there is like the sort of 11th unnamed assailant for this death is really the culture in Houston and around it at the time. That's probably the, the thing I would definitely agree with about this. Weiss may have been released, like we found out to his father's supervision in 2015, but in 2020, he's arrested again on a DUI when his car and himself are found in a ditch in the woodlands. Huh. Um, This violates terms of his parole, and I don't know if anything has been decided about it yet. As a result of Paul Broussard's murder, the Houston City Council unanimously passed a resolution calling for a gay-inclusive state-level hate crimes bill. The Houston PD also added sexual orientation to the list of biases motivating a hate crime. And the hate crimes bill would be shot down many, 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 many times (laughs) over the years by conservatives. So it kind of just lived there. Um, The other side wouldn't agree to it, and they refused to even, like, budge at all about voting, about vetoing it, until they changed the language from sexual orientation to sexual preference. And then they were okay with it, finally. So this, paired with the murders of James Byrd and Matthew Shepard, finally helped push the hate crimes bill forward, which passed in 2001 as the James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Act. Damn. I mean, I hate that. I don't know if it still says sexual preference. I hate that that's in there. (laughs) Right. But if that's what it takes, if that's the language it takes to have something be done Bob Lanier, and I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing his name wrong, he's eventually elected mayor of Houston, and one of his first actions was to reach out to help Paul's mother and see if there's anything they could do for the victim's family, and he immediately elects an advocate to be a crime victim's advocate for the city. Mm -hmm. Right after the indictment of the Woodlands 10, an undercover operation called Vice Versa was initiated in the Houston PD, and it had Houston police officers going undercover into the Montrose Mm -hmm. and acting as though they were gay to see how they would be treated and see what the, you know, pulse of the situation was.
0: I want to scream already, but Mm -hmm. keep going.
1: Within a week, one of them is assaulted. Okay. And so more come very quickly and they realize that there's a lot that needs to be done. Yeah, a documentary. Another documentary about Paul's murder was made in 2016. It's called "The Murder in Montrose." Um, I did watch that one. It's available for free online. You can find it. It's pretty okay. great. Um, my one complaint about it is, it's called "A Mur the Murder in Montrose: The Paul Broussard Legacy." Right. I don't feel like it's very much about Paul. Um, okay. Of course, it's about what happens with Paul, and it talks a lot about how it affected the community and the aftermath. You mm-hmm. just don't get really a lot of Paul in it besides that he's the victim of the crime. Yeah. On July 28th of 2011, the Aaron Shearhorn Foundation and the local business owner Charles Armstrong and the Montrose Counseling Center dedicated the northwest corner of California and Grant Street as Montrose Remembrance Garden. Mm. And they are right. Quote, we are coming together this time to remember Paul along with the countless others in our community who have met an untimely end as the victim of violence. So says Charles Armstrong, the host of the event. And it honors the following people it honors Fred Paez, Marion Panzer, Charles Hebert, Paul Broussard, Fred Mangioni, Mark Cajas, Ross Allen, Kenneth Cummings, Myra Chanel Ical. Gypsy Rodriguez, Asher Brown, Nathan Davis, and Aaron Shearhorn, all of whom were victims of hate crimes and violence. Aaron Shearhorn, for whom the organization is named, was killed in 2010, just blocks away from where Broussard was found. Mm -hmm. And Alan Everett of the Shearhorn Foundation says he hopes that the garden will be a place for honor, reflection, memorial, and comfort for those people who have been affected, not just by the murder of our friend Aaron, but also for any of the families and victims of past violent acts and murders that have taken place in this community throughout the course of many years. I hope it's a place of refuge and peace, solace and quiet, full of nature's beauty. And then here's what I was able to find about Paul Roussard in life. Not too, too much, but he was a Texas A&M graduate. He was very goal-oriented and loved by many for his fun-loving sense of humor. And his friends Rick and Carrie, that's Richard and Carrie, who were with him the night he was assaulted and were assaulted as well, they wrote the last portion of his obituary, and it said, mm-hmm. quote, Paul, though your life was maliciously interrupted by this torturous act, know that we love you and we miss you, and we know the party continues where you are now where we'll soon be with you. Love, Rick and Carrie. God. And that is the end of the case of the senseless assault of Carrie Anderson and Richard Delaney and the tragic murder of Paul Broussard.
0: Dang. Wow. Great job. Thank you.
1: I knew even the research into picking a case was going to be hard. Yeah. (laughs) And it's just hard for me to cover it. It's important and I love covering things about my own community, to be honest, because I think I'm very passionate about this. Yeah. But it's hard because, you know, all of us in any sort of marginalized community understand what it's like to be on the outside or to have to live in constant, constant tension and fear and worry that you can't just breathe easily, you know? And I hate so much when places that are set up for us to feel safe because we need those spaces. I wish we didn't, but we do. It's so heartbreaking and scary for me when in those spaces, people are targeted and killed and, Yes, maybe Paul, Rick, and Carrie might not have been targeted for being gay, but that would be the one-off in the Montrose area and in most queer areas. You know, it's like, you know, we've we've talked about Pulse before on this and how much that affected both of us. And, you know, it's very real for me, you know, and especially like the thing in the episode about the dad not wanting the son to be known as gay, even in his his death. Like, that sounds crazy. I understand that. Yeah. I you mean, know, I, I, that's a reality today. That's not, oh, 1990. That's today. It's, you know, it's like. Totally. It's so uplifting to see so much progress and in visibility, especially, you know, the past few years. Mm-hmm. It's so sad to see how far we have to go yeah. <laughs> and how little stuff has
0: still not changed.
1: Yeah. Sometimes when I, when I like, when I see how similar things are to the way they were, and when i when i see how similar some attitudes still remain and when i see how hard it is to fight you know like i couldn't even get my job to put pride on the on the monthly calendar right there was so much resistance to even do that yeah for our city's event <laughs> city sponsored event for pride i can't even do that so yeah. could, uh, and that's small potatoes compared to anything anyone else is dealing with you know it's just yeah, it's a very. But it all contributes. To... It's all part of
0: the same system.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's so frustrating. It's so
0: frustrating. Well, you did a great job researching it and telling the story. Thank you for doing that. that Thank you. Doesn't, <laughs> like I said, I hated watching the episode, so I can't imagine it was a lot of fun to research.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh God. Okay. Well, how? I guess you didn't see the episode, but based on my retelling of it. How would you rate it for having dealt with the topic? D minus? Yeah. I'm giving it a failing grade for how it dealt with the topic because there was like very few moments where anybody was like, hey, that's problematic. Hey, that's super offensive. So, um, yeah, I'm going to give them an F for how they dealt with it.
1: Um, My D minus might turn to an F if I watch the episode. Who knows?
0: (laughs) True. Come back next (laughs) week and give us your your revised opinion. Um, I guess for watchability i would say it's maybe like a maybe like a c like they did a uh, the storytelling was okay for a law and order episode so i'll give them a c hmm okay i'm going to just give them a placeholder uh b minus
1: for now until i watch it <laughs>
0: okay great wait oh, well yeah. next week matt is our final episode of season 2 of ripped from the headlines can you believe that i really can't i'm shocked it came really fast it did I'm so proud of us. Um, So we're recording our final episode next week. And listeners, Matt and I might take a couple weeks off because Matt is moving across the country. So we will firm up that schedule. And in next week's episode, we will let you know what that break is going to look like. But uh, we hope you will tune in next week for the final episode of season two.
1: Yes, and don't worry, I am eager to get back on it right away. So basically, as soon as we have Wi-Fi, (laughs) wherever we are, (laughs) we'll be back to recording and releasing. So no worries, we're just taking a mid, you know, between seasons break.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: Well, Rip from the Headlines has an indie podcast. And if you enjoy listening to us, and I know you do... If you think others might too, the best thing you could do is rate and review our podcast on the platform that you're using to listen to it right now, because that's what really helps other people find us.
0: Yeah. The, every review we get helps make searching for our podcast more likely that other people will find it. So definitely write those reviews. Yeah. And I don't see any, I only see one for 2021 folks.
1: So get get on on it.
0: Also, the best way for other people to find our podcast is through word of mouth. So do tell a friend, post about us on Reddit, or find other ways to spread the word. Our social media is Ripped Headlines on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram.
1: And our email is rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com. We absolutely love getting email from you, so please feel free to just send us a note and say hi. And I just want to say big shout out to all you guys that are
0: participating and being active on the Facebook account. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, don't forget to check out our website, RippedHeadlinesPod.com. There is the link to our Patreon, which gives you some great perks, and you get the joy of supporting one of your favorite podcasts.
1: Also, a percentage of our Patreon proceeds gets donated to the Equal Justice Initiative, so by supporting us, you're also supporting positive change in the world. Thank you so much
0: for listening to Ripped from the Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction.
1: We'll see you next week, and until then, stay out of the headlines.
0: Bye. Bye.